Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all of her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the encouragement and correction that your word continually provides us. I ask this morning that you would help us to rightly understand this passage. I ask that, Holy Spirit, you would be our teacher that you would prick our hearts and consciences regarding areas of our life that need to be changed. Most importantly, Lord, if there are any here who don't know you at all, who are still dead in their sins, I ask that you would awaken them to new life today. You grant them a new birth, that they be brought into your kingdom, be adopted into your family. Lord, no matter where we are in relationship to you that way, I pray that your word would have its intended effect. And Lord, that you would transform all of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Life sure can get busy, can't it? Our world is moving at all new speeds. Everything seems to be going faster and faster. We all know the stress that comes with having a hundred irons in the fire, don't we? And juggling, having a hard time juggling three balls and then having two more added in. And we're all there, I'm sure. We all have difficulty in this life, especially in the fast-paced world we live in. We've become accustomed to being stressed out and being frazzled and being worn thin. Many people are weary and many people are worried and anxious Few experience genuine peace, few experience genuine joy, few experience contentment in the biblical sense. Philip Ryken presents our situation quite well. Living at hyperspeed, the images flicker ever more rapidly across the screens of our lives, hyped up and supercharged. We live from one surge of adrenaline to the next. We're busier now than we were a year ago, and we'll be even busier next year. We're witnessing the acceleration of just about everything. So maybe we'll just keep moving faster and faster until as we approach the speed of life, we'll suddenly disappear in a blur that smudges the cosmos. Then Riken asks, where is the time in all of this to nurture the life of one's soul? Because if there's one thing we cannot accelerate, it's our growth in godliness. How can our love for Jesus deepen? without time away to read our Bibles or to pray or to even stop and think. So can I ask you this morning, how are you doing in an accelerating world? Does a high-speed world have a stranglehold on you? Are you having a hard time keeping up? Do you feel lost amidst a whirlwind of activity? Is your busyness making life hollow and empty? Does anxiety wreak havoc on your soul? Do you feel your service and ministry running dry? Do you feel burnt out? Have you questioned the goodness of God? Have you begun having pity parties for yourself? Do you feel yourself lacking patience with others? Do you become irritable with others? Do you spend a lot of time complaining about what others are doing or are not doing? If you've answered yes to any of those questions, or perhaps all of them, You have a problem, but I can guarantee you you're not alone in that problem. Look around you, look to your right and left and everywhere else, and you'll see a bunch of people struggling with the same issue. 
perhaps with different amounts of that issue, but the same issue is being struggled with. At a bare minimum, at least all of us have been there before. But there's no reason for you to stay where you are. We come this morning to Luke 10, 38 through 42 in our Gospel Harmony, and I believe that we have much to learn from this interaction that happens between Jesus, Martha, and Mary. Could it be that we're experiencing anxieties and worries because we, like Martha, are neglecting the most important of all activities? Are we allowing busyness to distract us away from sitting at Jesus' feet? Is our drive for activity hindering us from giving our full and undivided attention to the Lord? Is our love for Jesus growing cold as days, weeks, and months, and years go by because we're neglecting to reserve time to read our Bibles, to pray, and to think? This morning in a sermon entitled, The One Thing That We All Need, The One Thing That We All Need, I can tell you plainly, the one thing we all need is to sit at Jesus' feet. That's it. It's very simple. It's a very simple statement to sit at Jesus' feet. Jesus tells Martha, who's anxious and troubled about many things, that there is but one thing necessary. Now, there's been no small amount of theological discussion regarding what is this singular necessity. (laughs) What is this one thing that Jesus is referring to? Some have said that Jesus' point was to say to Martha, Martha, Martha. Only one dish was necessary. You didn't have to make a multiple course meal here. One thing is necessary. Just bring one thing. Some have argued this way. Others have argued that perhaps Jesus is claiming himself to be the one thing. The one thing necessary is Jesus. But is Jesus really claiming here that Martha is completely neglecting him? Is Jesus referring to himself here as a thing? Wouldn't he say only one person is necessary if he was pointing to himself? And is this really what he's trying to describe with one dish is, is plenty is enough? Is that what he's trying to say? I think all these interpretations fail to take into account that Jesus himself explains what the one thing necessary is. He doesn't do it so much with a particular phrase as much as with a point in a glance to Martha's sister. It's what Mary is engaged in that Jesus is referring to as the one thing necessary He uses Mary as an object illustration in this course. Obviously, Jesus is not saying Mary has chosen the best dish of food. (laughs) She's chosen the best portion of food that you have to give out here. Certainly not saying that. He's also not referring to himself here as the good portion contextually, although we would say that Jesus himself is our treasure. The point of Jesus' words is to point to the activity that was necessary. That's what's under question here. And it's Mary's action that Jesus is pointing to. The one thing necessary is to sit at Jesus' feet. This is the good portion. So the exhortation of this sermon is very, very simple. You get to a text like this and you're like, well, what's the point of the text? The point of the text is to say this, sit at Jesus' feet. There it is. Like Mary, we're supposed to sit at Jesus' feet. But perhaps I should make sure that you understand what that entails, especially given the fact that Jesus is not flesh and blood walking around with us now, right? He has risen again and ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. How do we continue to engage in this behavior of sitting at Jesus' feet when Jesus is not physically, literally right here? How do we do that? I think there's a couple of things that I could mention quickly. To sit at Jesus' feet certainly involves a couple of things. First of all, it involves deep humility. It involves deep humility. The Bible is full of all kinds of postures in relationship to the Lord. There are times in which hands are extended and lifted high. There are times when people are standing. There are times when people are prostrate with their faces on the ground before God. There are a multitude of postures. And all these postures do communicate something about our beliefs and values. To sit at Jesus' feet is by its very nature to take a role of submission. It's to indicate the fact that you recognize someone else's greatness and your lowness. The gospel really is good news to the one who admits, first of all, his spiritual bankruptcy, recognizes that all of his righteous deeds are a filthy rag in God's sight. The one who has been humbled and broken to sit at Jesus' feet is is the easiest thing to do. That is, unless you maintain your spiritual arrogance and pride. 
If you won't give up pride and arrogance, then you'll never sit at Jesus' feet. Sitting at Jesus' feet requires deep humility, and it pictures deep humility, which is not only part of conversion, but an ongoing experience of those who are truly Christ's. Not only pictures that, but it also pictures dependence, doesn't it? When a child sits at his teacher's feet, there is an expression of trust and faith. There's an openness. There's an attentiveness that says, I want to listen to you. I'm dependent upon you. And so it is in the Christian life. We must continually trust in Jesus to save and preserve us. It also pictures our position as learners. To sit at Jesus' feet is to take upon ourselves the place of a child. To sit and listen attentively to Jesus. You see, Jesus is not merely making converts, but he's making disciples. We're being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. The sit of Jesus' feet manifests our ongoing need to receive instruction from the Lord and to submit and obey whatever it is that he says to us. I think this also demonstrates that we find, where we find our greatest joy, who it is who has our heart. Have you ever seen children... Younger children especially, and you say, we're going to read a story. And the moment that comes out, what do kids do, younger ones? They gather around real quick, don't they? And they sit down. They'll sit down on the floor. They don't care. Where, they don't need posh, nice seats to sit in, right? They'll sit on anything. It can be hard. Or it doesn't matter because they're attentive to the words that are coming from this storyteller. We who love Jesus find our greatest joy sitting at his feet. If Jesus is our treasure then that fact will inflame our passions. It will drive us to spend quality time with Him. We who love God the Father also love God the Son, John 8, 42. And those who love Him listen to and obey His commandments, and they are not burdensome, 1 John 5, 3. It's a true and important ministry to sit and listen to our great Teacher, Jesus Christ. Certainly all these things are done in the context of our devotional life before the Lord, we certainly do this privately. We also do it corporately as we attend to the Word of God together. And we sit and listen to Jesus' words. And the reason Jesus gives for why we're to follow the example of Mary and sit at His feet is also quite simple. So a simple exhortation, sit at Jesus' feet. What's the reason? Another very simple reason provided here, because it's the one thing we all need. That's why. It's the one thing necessary. That's why. I guess on some level I could close the sermon at this point. That's the point of the text. Sit at Jesus' feet. Why? Because it's necessary. That's why. And we can leave it at that. But rather than close with that exhortation, I want to spend a little bit of time convincing you of your need to do this. To sit at Jesus' feet. Because I believe that until you perceive that you really do have this need, that this one thing is needful to your soul and life, you'll continue to neglect it. It's not until you become convinced that this one thing is necessary that it will transform how often you actually engage in it. And oh, what a tragedy it is for a man to neglect the one thing that he needs. There are a lot of people neglecting the one thing that they actually need. It seems to describe the plight of our age so well. Many choose that which is alluring and dazzling over that which is necessary. Many will neglect the important things for the urgent things. So here are three reasons why sitting at Jesus' feet is the one thing we all need. Three reasons why sitting at Jesus' feet is the one thing we all need. First of all, it's liberating. Second of all, it's comprehensive. And third of all, it's universal. It's liberating. It's comprehensive. It's universal. It's liberating because it frees us from entangling distractions. It's comprehensive because it permeates everything else. And it's universal because it's applicable to all. First recognize, you must sit at Jesus' feet because this one thing is liberating. That's why. It's liberating. It frees us from entangling distractions. Now, it's obvious that man can't help but search for significance throughout his life. But due to the fall and the advent of sin, man seeks to find significance in things which ultimately fail to give it. A great host of voices vie for our attention, for our devotion, for our concern. And it's very easy to get lost in the sea of distractions that are all around us. I want to talk real quickly about a couple of categories of distraction. 
that would love to soak up all of your time and energy and thought. First is that of indulging yourself with worldly enjoyments. Indulging yourself with worldly enjoyments. Some time periods have been marked by saving and thrifty spending, while others have, of the time periods have encouraged a spend now, pay later sort of mentality. Immediate gratification is certainly the thing of our time. You even notice how Black Friday has backed itself up into Thursday now. They're going to call it Black Thursday from now on. I wonder if next year, every year it gets a little bit earlier, doesn't it? I wonder if next year we're just going to skip Thanksgiving altogether. Just right into rampant materialism. And certainly there's nothing wrong with finding a good deal. Certainly nothing wrong with finding gifts for our loved ones and, and for even acquaintances. For whoever else you're buying gifts for. I just want to warn us that we not allow ourselves to get swept up into the lust for stuff. Materialism is alive and well. It would love to just soak up all of your spiritual vitality. Here's a question. How can you proclaim your citizenship is in heaven if all of your treasure is earthly? If my citizenship is in heaven and all I'm doing with my life is amassing earthly treasures, what am I actually declaring to the world around me? My treasures are here. It's also where my heart is, isn't it? Jesus described it that way. He said, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. So he said, store up treasures in heaven, right? Where moth doesn't destroy, rust doesn't destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal. We live in a culture that pushes forward entertainment and enjoyment and indulging the pleasures of the flesh whenever and however possible. We cannot allow this world to capture our perspective on life. John Bunyan, in his brilliant allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, famously depicted the distractions of this world by a town named Vanity Fair. The city was positioned, Bunyan tells us, in such a way that all pilgrims on their way to the celestial city, in other words, all disciples of Christ, would have to go through Vanity Fair. It was an unavoidable stop along the journey. And there in Vanity Fair were sold all sorts of vanity among the merchandise offered were houses and lands and honors and titles and kingdoms and lusts and pleasures and delights of all sorts. Prostitutes, wives, husbands, children, silver, gold, pearls. It's an interesting list there, isn't it? I mean, right next to each other, you have prostitutes and then wives and husbands and children. It seems a little bit shocking until you recognize what Bunyan so well understood. Not only can immoral activity distract us from the Lord, but even God's good blessings can be a distraction away from the Lord. Anytime you value anything above its proper place, it becomes an idol. Anytime you allow something to distract your attention away from giving God your first and best and all, you have engaged in idolatry. Blessings from God can, ought to encourage us to be thankful to God, who is the giver of all good gifts. We had some of Ecclesiastes 2 read this morning. appreciate Chris not being able to just let it sit there. He had to provide some good news there. It's kind of, it's kind of a, ugh. you know, you read through Ecclesiastes 2 and you're just like, man, ugh. it's a real downer, isn't it? It really, it really sinks in and feels that way. Remember, King Solomon, if anybody had the resources to indulge in pleasure... It was him. I think it was Randy when we went through this text. He mentioned that, you know, he goes out, he plants a forest, right? You know, he's, he's got wealth to plant a forest. I mean, who can do that today, right? So we see King Solomon indulging in as much pleasure as he feasibly can. And he has a lot of means at his disposal to make that happen. But in the end, he considers all of his activities and he says it's all striving after when. He says there's no profit under the sun for any of it. You see, all these pleasures don't last. The person who invests their life in things of this earth is exceedingly short-sighted. Even those people who think they're long-sighted because they've spent their whole life being diligent, saving, providing for retirement, right? Those people are exceedingly short-sighted as well. If all you can think about is your life, you are exceedingly short-sighted. For how long does the, does the soul last? It's eternal. So if all you've thought about is the last 80, the next 80 or perhaps 100 years of your life, you haven't thought far enough, friends. You're exceedingly short-sighted. Instead, you must recognize that all the pleasures of this life 
will ultimately pass away. First John two seventeen. The gratification of the flesh also carries consequences both in this life and in the life to come. Jesus said in Mark eight thirty six, even if you did gain the whole world, does it really profit a man if he loses his soul? Just think about it this way. If we were all on board a ship and maybe one of us among us was super rich and had bags of gold with him, but the ship's going down, how much does the gold matter to you then? I always kind of chuckle about it today. Certainly you've heard on the radio so many advertisements for buying gold and, you know, the dollars crashing, blah, 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 into the world, all the rest. Um, I always kind of chuckle about this. Regardless of what actually happens with the currency market and all the rest, in the end, you know who's really going to be the richest if everything collapses? Not the person who has bags of gold, but the person who has chickens and cows and, you know, and some crops. Because when it comes right down to it, you get real acquainted with what's really necessary to life. And quite honestly, I don't care how much gold you have at that moment. If I'm just wanting to eat another meal, it doesn't really matter how much gold is on the table. It's just kind of a big paperweight at that point, isn't it? But ultimately, when we consider spiritual realities, none of this stuff is going with us, is it? None of it is. Solomon indulged in all pleasures. They profited nothing. J.C. Ryle put it this way. Profits and pleasures are dearly purchased if in order to obtain them, we thrust aside eternity from our thoughts. If it causes us to abridge our Bible reading and become careless hearers of the gospel and shorten our prayers, those pleasures are too high a cost. Jesus provides that proper corrective in his sermon about Matthew 6, I've already alluded to. Store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. You know, Christian and faithful in Pilgrim's Progress and John Bunyan's story, how they interacted with this vanity fair, they interacted with it lightly. Lightly. They knew they were pilgrims who must not become encumbered with earthly things. So when called upon by the merchants of Vanity Fair to make purchases, Christian and faithful put their fingers in their ears and cried, Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. And looked upwards, signifying that their trade and traffic was in heaven. When they were asked by these merchants, What will you buy? What will you buy? Christian and faithful replied, We buy the truth. <laughs> this is a quotation from Proverbs 23, 23. You see, a Christian is one who has come to recognize the vanity of, the world's, of this world's pleasures. But continued vigilance is necessary. And what form does that vigilance take? I want to perhaps give you a, a different uh, way of thinking through this. I really believe that the way in which to see the vanity of the world for what it really is, isn't so much by continually telling yourself, don't highly prize this, don't highly prize this, but instead... To allow your mind to focus on that which is high, to be highly prized. In other words, if you will consistently sit at Jesus' feet, that will transform your perspective of everything else. There's a lot of people that interact with sin the wrong way. They try to do battle with sin by thinking more about the sin. When in reality, they should be thinking more about Jesus, more about Christ, more about the relationship with Him, more sitting at Jesus' feet. That will transform your battle with sin and the allurements of this world's pleasures. Sit at Jesus' feet, be acquainted with Him, enjoy deep, flowing relationship with Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. The truth is this, you can't win that battle in the flesh. It can only be done by the work of the Holy Spirit. So you need to spend time with Jesus, sitting at Jesus' feet, will transform your perspective of everything else. There's another sort of distraction that can happen. Not only just indulging yourself in worldly enjoyments, but you could invest yourself in worldly employments. How about that one? You could invest yourself in worldly employments. Certainly slothfulness is no badge of honor. Proverbs 6.6 6, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. There's no chief, no officer, no ruler. Meanwhile, prepares her food in the summer, gathers a provision in the harvest, how long will you lie down, O sluggard, when you will arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come on you like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. It's right for us to recognize the wisdom in a hardworking, diligent man who advances forward in doing, doing his work well. 
At least he's not squandering his earning potential. At least he's not like the prodigal son, wasting his inheritance on loose living. But mere busyness doesn't ultimately result in anything different than gross indulgence. We're talking about ultimate results. The one who engages in horrible immorality and gross indulgence versus the one who is very, very diligent and hardworking, very, very busy throughout the individual's life. Ultimately, the ultimate result remains the same. Yet so often our world advances busyness and advancement without any ultimate reason why. You ever heard this progression before? The child asks, why do I have to go to school? The child is told, to get good grades and to get into a good college. To which the child will necessarily ask, why? To which you'll respond, perhaps, to prepare for a job. Why? To make money and to support a family. Why? So you can amass wealth for yourself and have nice stuff. Why? So you can give to the next generation more than what you had. Live the American dream. Why? So they can do the same. Why? To leave a legacy of wealth and prosperity. And perhaps leave your mark on the world. You see, there have been many who have given their lives to the pursuit of wealth through hard work. But to what great end? Solomon also tested this way out, didn't he? We had this read in Ecclesiastes 2, 17-21. And his conclusion to all of it is, I hated life. That's how he concludes. He says, I gave my life to wearisome labor, diligent work. And he says, I hated life. He talks about the, the preposterousness of this whole situation. That he could spend his whole life being wise and discerning and calculating and a penny pincher. But when he dies, all of it goes to someone else. And who knows how they're going to deal with his stuff. He says, the person could be wise or they could be a complete fool and lose it all in a moment. But then what was it worth? You see how what he's played through here is exactly the progression they just gave, right? In the end, what they're saying is leave a legacy. But what does even that mean if all that legacy consists of is Monetary possessions. Oh, I sure do hope that you leave a legacy. Let it be a spiritual one. One that results in eternal rewards. You see, busyness for its own sake, being void of ultimate purpose, is vain and empty. Just as indulging in pleasures is vain and empty. Can I mention one other distraction, I think, that distracts us from sitting at Jesus' feet? Another one? Clinging to self-righteous religious accomplishments. Clinging to self-righteous religious accomplishments. Interestingly, even religion itself can be a distraction that we need to be free from. This is because even religious busyness in and of itself is of no value. We read this morning in Isaiah, our passage in Sunday school, I told Randy, Randy's like, it's crazy, like these things just keep lining up very well with one another. But Isaiah 29, 13 declares the coming judgment from the Lord. He says, because this people draw near to me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. These people were going through the motions. And that can be just as much a distraction as indulging in pleasures or investing yourself in as much busyness as you can find. Jesus condemned the scribes and Pharisees during his ministry for this very thing in Matthew 23. He says, woe to them. He has all these woes in Matthew 23, but he calls them whitewashed tombs, right? Dead men's bones are inside. You look outwardly to be something pretty and good, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Paul warned against man-made religions in Colossians 2. Those sorts of legalism that say, don't do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And as a result, just reduce, remove the gospel, the good news from the gospel. 
He says these matters are those which, to be sure, have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You see, what makes this sort of situation so devastating, perhaps the most devastating form of distraction, is that it parades itself around as if it was genuine Christianity, when in reality it's not. Merely going through the motions of organized religion does not mean you are on right terms with God. To merely go through the motions of organized religion does not mean you're on right terms with God. A good question to ask yourself. Here's a good litmus test question to ask yourself. Do I really long to sit at Jesus' feet and learn from Him? Ask yourself that question. Do I really long to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to Him? Is God's Word the treasure of my soul? Do I identify with the psalmist in Psalm 119 where you just can't get off the subject? It's just verse after verse after verse after verse of how much he loves the Word of God. Do you cheerfully agree with whatever the Holy Spirit teaches you from the Word of God? Is there evidence that you're enjoying relationship with Jesus Christ? Ask yourself those questions. Make sure you're not being distracted from Jesus in the midst of your supposed religion. You see, sitting at Jesus' feet is not only essential, though, for salvation, but it's essential for ongoing practice for those who have been saved. And that's actually the context in which this discussion occurs between Jesus, Mary, and Martha. It's evident that both Mary and Martha love Jesus and that Jesus loves both of them and their brother Lazarus. You can read in John 11, verse 5, where that's explicitly said. (laughs) Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Mary, and Lazarus, their brother. It's quite possible that the opening moments of the circumstance were filled with nothing but pure delight. That Jesus had come to visit them. Martha's immediate response is to do what? It's, it's, it's conjectured here that she's probably the, the eldest in the family. And we don't hear anything about her having a husband. So either she's a widow or she wasn't married. But regardless, there she is. And her immediate response is, let's make preparations. She rolls out the red carpet for Jesus, right? And it's quite possible that that immediate moment was filled with nothing but pure delight. Jesus had come to visit them. So her immediate response is set about making preparations for Jesus' stay. She wants to minister in whatever hospitality she could imagine. She begins attending to Jesus' needs. Meanwhile, Mary, her sister, sits down at Jesus' feet and attends to Jesus' words. Therefore, what's being pictured here is not a believer versus an unbeliever, but two believers. As a matter of fact, note Martha's confession in John eleven twenty seven. It's awesome. Jesus, you're the Christ, the Son of the God. I mean, it's very, very plain. Martha knew Jesus. What's being pictured here is the occasion that occurs when two believers are given an opportunity to serve Jesus. In this case, one is given an opportunity through a ministry of practical helps and another through a ministry of attentive Listening. And while Martha is preparing a banquet, Mary is partaking in one. While Martha's getting things ready for a feast to happen, Mary's already dug in. And she's feasting upon the words of Christ. Were it not for the fact that Martha becomes angry with her sister's lack of help to her, and her subsequent question of Jesus' care for her, he goes, Do you not even care about me? Do you see how that comes out? Martha goes, Lord, do you not even care about me that I'm here working? And meanwhile, my sister's sitting there before your feet. It's, a, it's such a reality, this too, isn't there? You almost can sense like the sibling rivalry going on here too, right? We, a lot of times, if there's lack of patience we have, often it happens towards our siblings, sadly. And we see that happening right here. Martha is exasperated and she's frustrated and she's angry because she's doing all the work and there's Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. I will note, though, I want to make sure that you do know, Jesus does not rebuke Martha for serving. There's not a rebuke given to Martha for serving. He brings a rebuke to her attitude and her desire to criticize and correct her sister's actions. Please remember 
There is absolutely nothing wrong with the ministry of hospitality. In fact, we're commanded to engage in this. See Romans 12, 13, 1 Peter 4, 9 and 10, Hebrews 13, 2. Sir, none of us are surprised that Martha wants to roll out the red carpet for Jesus. Yet don't miss the fact that Mary's actions also do the same. Mary's also rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. With a different facet in mind, Mary is giving her undivided attention to learning from her Lord and Savior. Neither here is being spiritually slothful. Please note that. I think this occasion would have gone down a little bit different if Mary had been just, you know, playing her Game Boy, playing her PlayStation, you know, crocheting something off in the corner without sitting with Jesus' feet, right? I mean, the picture changes a whole lot. Mary here is attentively listening to Jesus. You see, oftentimes the burnout that people experience in ministry is directly tied to doing ministry as a product of the flesh. Instead of it arising from deep love and appreciation to Christ, we can lose sight of this fact and become much like Martha in this account. I'm sure all of us have been Martha. Can we just all admit that up front? We have all been Martha, we have. You've had moments, I'm sure you have, I know I have, where I've begun in good spirits with proper motivations and great intentions. And the going gets tough, and we get a little stressed, and anxieties build, and pity parties commence, and comparisons are made, and judgments are leveled, and criticisms are aired, and remediation is demanded. And what started out as sweet service out of love to Christ has degenerated to bitter resentment against a fellow servant of Christ. Somewhere along the line, we stopped serving Christ and began thinking of ourselves and resenting others. I'm sure there's not a church that has not been affected by that. I'm sure all of us have experienced this on some level. When we neglect to spend time at Jesus' feet, you can be sure to see a slow decline in the quality of our service and ministry to Jesus. We have to be aware of these attitudes creeping in. We often think that the particular ministry that we ourselves are invested in should see more participation from other Christians. We ask, why don't people care about what I'm doing? Why aren't people more supportive of what I'm involved in? Why aren't there more volunteers? Why are, there, why are others not prioritizing their service the way that I am? And when these questions begin to build and compound in our minds, we go from concern to self-pity to anger to judgmentalism. And then we do just like Martha. We stop serving altogether and we begin the gripe session. We begin complaining. We begin registering our criticisms. And we begin scolding and demanding others to do things that we think they should be doing. You see, we can't, in service to Jesus, get distracted away from Jesus. Secondly, sitting at Jesus' feet is the one thing necessary because it's comprehensive. It's this thing that permeates everything else. First of all, it informs us how to serve in the appropriate fashion. You see, understanding that sitting at Jesus' feet is the one thing necessary informs our ministry. Ministry must be done with this singular necessity in mind. Our one priority must be to maintain an attitude of submission, an attitude of teachability, an attitude of dependence, an attitude of trust, an attitude of love to Christ in all things. Remember, it wasn't Martha's service per se that's wrong. We're called to serve others. We're called to minister to the needs of others. We're called to practically help with others' needs. As a matter of fact, isn't it interesting, this happens right after the parable of the Good Samaritan. For that very thing is being, right? And the the priest and the Levite are criticized strongly because they won't help someone in need with practical helps. So Martha engaging in practical helps, there's nothing wrong with that. There's something very real and true and good about that. 
Martha goes wrong when she fails to serve in the appropriate fashion. When her mind becomes concerned with things other than how she can display love and care to Jesus. At that moment, she's no longer serving Jesus. No matter if she says she is, she's not. She's now serving herself. She's now criticizing others. And look at how Jesus brings such a loving correction to her. Martha. Martha. I can imagine him saying that to her. Martha. Martha. You're concerned with many things. One thing is necessary. Mary's chosen the good part. It won't be taken away from her. Don't try to take away from Mary what she's doing right now. That's what Jesus says to Martha. He brings this loving correction to her. I think it's a great thing to remember that there's one thing necessary. Because there are a great many matters that may be very, very important. There might be a great number of matters that are that are very good ways of doing things. They might be quite reasonable. There might be a number of decisions that are extremely wise and which we might even carry some strong convictions, some strong persuasions about. But let us always crystal clear remember that there is one thing necessary. This will quickly curtail our aptness to nitpick at how others serve and do ministry. Oh, you have to you have to balance statements like these. Certainly, certainly the scriptures call us to make biblical judgments, to exhort in sound doctrine, and even to refute those who contradict. But we must be careful not to criticize those who are maintaining the genuine gospel and sitting at Jesus' feet. If the gospel has been distorted, that must be corrected. If it's been publicly distorted, it can be publicly corrected. There's quite a difference between that and someone who genuinely knows the gospel, loves Jesus, is sitting at his feet, and is serving with what they've got. And for us to then be nitpicking their service. Be very, I warn you against such behavior. Instead, you too sit at Jesus' feet. Because not only does it inform the way you serve, but it ignites a passion to serve wholeheartedly. Not in a distracted fashion, but in a wholehearted way. You see, our service will never truly glorify God until it's rightly motivated from a position of faith. For anything not done from faith to sin, and without faith it's impossible to please God. The one thing that's needful for you to do is to sit it down at Jesus' feet. To find your contentment in His righteousness, His crucifixion, His resurrection. It's only sitting at Jesus' feet that you'll have all of your anxieties cured. And the plague of your soul can be quieted. It's only by trusting in Him that you can be anxious for nothing. It's only here at Jesus' feet that you'll find the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. It's only from this position that you can render acceptable service unto Him. You see, sitting at Jesus' feet is the one thing necessary because while simple, it comprehends everything else. It's not a choice between deep devotional life and relationship with Jesus and serving Him. As a matter of fact, some Roman Catholic apologists have gone to this text to advocate nunnery and monkery. Right? Going into a convent, separate yourself off. Be, live the life of away from everyone else, whatever that word is. I can't think of it right now. Right? Live that monastic life. Live that life away from everyone else. They pointed this text to do that. I think it's a misunderstanding of the text. It's not a choice between, am I going to live a deep, devotional, loving relationship with Jesus, or am I going to serve? It's this, out of a deep, devotional love for Jesus, I will serve. It is this that motivates everything else. And if you try to skip over devotion right into duty, you won't get it. And you'll be exactly where Martha was. You'll burn out quick. People who experience burnout in ministry, I can guarantee you this, they're not spending enough time sitting at Jesus' feet. Because if you sit at Jesus' feet, He imbues you with power and energy and excitement. Isn't it awesome? What's so great about this is then we can use it as a litmus test. So every time that Jeff starts to feel that way, why aren't more people volunteering? Why aren't more people volunteering? What? Every time I say, what do I need to do? Am I spending time at Jesus' feet? Why am I worried about all these other concerns when one thing is necessary? Allow this to imbue and change the way that I relate to service. 
recognize that Jesus really is. Reichen says it well. He's the perfect antidote for all the unattractive attitudes that poison our service when we, we turn our attention away from him. The gospel is the cure for our distraction as we're drawn to the beauty of his grace. His peace is the cure for our anxiety as we trust him through the worries of life. His love is the cure for our self-pity as we forget ourselves in serving others for his sake. His mercy is the cure for our resentment as we offer others the same forgiveness that Jesus has given to us. And note this. The end of the story is not just Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. As a matter of fact, this is a notable way. We see this happen again in John 11 or John 12. Mary is once again at Jesus' feet. But this time with the ministry of practical helps. Remember what happens? It's the same Mary who takes out a very costly vial of perfume and pours it upon Jesus' feet and then wipes his feet with her hair. You see, Mary's love for Jesus overflowed in heartfelt ministry. And so it must be for us. Our service must be an overflow of sitting at Jesus' feet. This brother Lawrence that wrote this book a long time ago called Practicing His Presence. And the idea of the book is very simple. That we should practice the presence of spending time with the Lord in and through all activity. So you start by retreating away and finding time, quiet time with the Lord, literally quiet time with the Lord. But the goal ultimately is to always live with that recognition that the Lord is present with us. To sit at Jesus' feet while we are serving. Thirdly, Sitting at Jesus' feet is the one thing we all need because it is universal. It's applicable to everyone. And bring this out with two, two points. First is this. This is the purpose for which we were created. This is the purpose for which we were created. When Jesus explains that there is but one thing necessary, he indicates what is our purpose for existence. If this is the only thing required, then it must figure at the very heart of why we're here. It is sitting at Jesus' feet that best pictures what living is all about. This is what helps us make sense of Jesus' words in John 4, when he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What drove, what sustained Jesus, what provided him with continual energy to press forward in accomplishing the Father's work? It was doing his Father's work. It was doing his Father's will. So for to follow Christ, we must be seen sitting at his feet. Feasting upon his word as the one thing necessary to our existence. This is why we exist. Everything else is subservient to it. See, Virgin puts it well. Listen to this. Were you made only to be a machine for digging holes, laying bricks, or cutting out pieces of wood? Were you created only to stand at a counter and measure out or weigh, weigh out goods? Do you think your God made you for that and that only? Is this the chief end of man, to earn a shilling a week and to try to make ends meet therewith? Is that all immortal men were made for? As an animal like a dog, nor a machine like a steaming engine, can you stand up and look at yourself and say, I believe I am perfectly fulfilling my destiny. I beg this morning to interject that quiet but right into the middle of your busy life and ask you space for consideration, a pause from the voice of wisdom that a hearing may be granted her. Business? Labor? Yes, but there is a higher bread to be earned. And there is a higher life to be considered. Hence the Lord puts it, Labor not for the meat that perishes. Perisheth. That is to say, not for that first and foremost, but for that which endureth unto life eternal. God hath made man that he may glorify him. And whatever else man accomplishes, if he fails to reach that end, Unless he comes to sit at Jesus' feet, there and there only can he learn how to sanctify his business and to consecrate his labor and so bring forth unto God through his grace that which is due to him. Dear friends, dear mothers, were you made to change diapers? Were you, were you made, people out in the workplace, were you made to dig holes? 
That, do you feel like you're accomplishing your life's purpose by doing these things? I sure hope not. The human soul longs for more meaning than that. And the good news is that there is more meaning than that. Those things all of a sudden take on meaning when connected to ultimate purpose. I can dig holes to the glory of God. I can change diapers. My wife does way more than I do. My wife changes diapers to the glory of God. These things can be done to the glory of God. But without that in mind, everything else is just vain and futile and empty. But with the glory of God in mind, everything gets filled and infused with purpose and meaning. For this reason, that when we share the gospel, when we encourage evangelism to be done, we do it with this purpose being prominent. The gospel must be presented in a manner that declares the centrality of God, not man. God doesn't exist for our good pleasure. We exist for His. All of mankind owes God perfect obedience and undefiled worship. Yet we fail to do that. And therefore we come under His holy wrath. And that's bad news. But there is good news. Because not only was God's purpose that we would sit at Jesus' feet when He created us, but His purpose is continued forward with the plan of redemption. This is the purpose for which we were redeemed. That's why you'll sit at Jesus' feet, because you were created to do it, and you were redeemed to do it. You see, even though we've rebelled against the grand purpose for which God created us, and we're helpless to write the record ourselves, God in His marvelous mercy and grace has made a way where there seemed to be no way. God's amazing grace has brought about, has brought about an astounding redemption. He has secured a people for his own possession from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God the Father sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on the behalf of those who repent and trust in him. Jesus exclaimed in the context of his prayer to God the Father in John 17:24, "Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you've given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world." What is Jesus longing for? For his people to be with him where he is. We were created for this. We were redeemed for this. It is the one thing necessary because it's what life is all about. It's why we're here. You see, God's work of redemption restores the sweet fellowship the man once had with God while in the Garden of Eden. God's purpose in redemption is in harmony with his original intention in creation. Ultimately, everything is done for the glory of God, for his renown. So certainly God's purpose in creating and redeeming us becomes our doubled purpose for living. He made us to glorify and enjoy him forever. So sitting at Jesus' feet is the one thing necessary for all of us. Recognize this. All of creation, all of humanity is called to accountability on the sheer basis of creation. Everyone knows God as Father in the Creator sense. But for those who have been born again, we've been adopted into God's family, who now know God as Daddy, we know just how necessary sitting at Jesus' feet is. We were created for this and we were redeemed for this. This is the heart of everything. And guys, it will be so throughout all eternity. As I mentioned before, evangelism, temporary activity. When we get to heaven, evangelism ceases. Evangelism isn't primary. Worship is, as Piper has said. And figuring at the heart of worship is attentively sitting at the feet of Jesus. This activity is always appropriate. It doesn't matter what your age is. It doesn't matter what your nationality is. It doesn't matter what your social status is. It doesn't matter your heritage, your, your number of possessions. No matter your circumstances, the one thing needful is sitting at Jesus' feet. So don't allow all the distractions of this world to keep you from this one needful thing. Don't allow the tyranny of the urgent to keep you away from that which is singularly necessary and important. Friends, You'll never graduate from this class. You'll never graduate from sitting at Jesus' feet. This class is yours forever. There's no more glorious place to be. There is no greater privilege than being provided a seat at Jesus' feet. And there is no promotion beyond this. No matter your experience at Jesus' feet, there's always more to be had. And there's always more that Jesus has to give. Isn't that the wonderful thing? I've said it before. Human teachers, we can only give you so much. You'll get to the end of Jeff really quick. 
But if you'll sit at Jesus' feet, you got treasures for all eternity. And this is a treasure that will never be stripped from you. Jesus says, Mary's chosen the good part, and it will never be taken away from her. You know, at death, kings lose their kingdoms. Rich men lose their riches. Popular people lose their popularity. But the man who has Christ will never lose his inheritance. That's the other glorious thing about this, right? The person who stores up treasures on earth, every day that passes, they get one day closer to leaving all their treasure behind. But for those who store up the treasures in heaven, every day that passes brings us one step closer to our inheritance. There's a praise course I remember seeing when I was in college that seems to capture this really, really, really well. Faithful Lord, fill my cup with your grace and love, your grace and love. The pleasures that this world's full of will never be enough, could never be enough, because I'm created for you alone, bought with a price. I'm not my own, seated in the heavenlies, and there's no place I'd rather be than with you forever, Lord. You are my treasure. I'm sure we've all fallen into uh, Martha's condition. We've all fallen victim to this. So what must we do? Should we recognize that that's where we're at? I think the Lord's letter to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2 provides some really good guidance. The congregation in Ephesus was a church that had greatly benefited from a wonderful succession of godly preachers and teachers. It was probably the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos that first introduced the city of the gospel. Then the Apostle Paul spent over two years there. Then we know Timothy served that church. And according to church history, the Apostle John spent time in there before his exile to Patmos. So all of that teaching and sound doctrine had the wonderful effect of causing that church to be hardworking, persevering, and discerning. And all of these things are praised at the beginning of that letter in Revelation 2 that church in Ephesus. All those things are mentioned and all those things are commended. Yet, then we have a turn. Jesus had something against them. They had left their first love. Spiritual apathy had come over the church. Their love had grown cold. Jeremiah chapter 2 explains what's at the heart of this. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. A church will dry up really fast, even if it's, quote, quote, orthodox. It teaches the genuine gospel. If there is not love for Jesus among us, what do we have? We become a clanging cymbal and a gonging bell. It's all for nothing. So what's the solution? Jesus gives the solution. Remember from where you've fallen, repent, and return to the deeds you did at first. But the solution is found in returning to the deeds which you did at first. And what are these? I think the key is recapturing the richness of Bible study, the richness of prayer, richness of worship. And it's all being fueled by love for Christ. You see, the church has work to do today. And we have correct theology to study, teach, and to champion. But above all, dear friends, the church has a person to love. We have Jesus Christ to love. May we love Him with love unfailing May we, may we beware of engaging in mere busyness without continually sitting at Jesus' feet. To be occupied with Christ is more important than to be occupied for Christ. To sit at Jesus' feet is the one thing we all need. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the way in which your word just cuts to the chase and cuts us to the core. Lord, I must admit that I have engaged in far too much service that has been motivated by the flesh. I have given in to the same things that Martha was on that occasion. I identify with her so well. I know what it is to feel those feelings and to recognize the pity parties going on and all the rest, Lord. And I repent of it, Lord. Please drive that from me. Allow my service to be motivated out of love for you. May it be sitting at your feet that I crave more than anything else. Lord, I long for that for this church. Lord, in the midst of all of the activity and the flurry of ministry and wonderful, wonderful things, it's not to denigrate those things, but Lord, please help preserve for us a clean conscience and a pure heart as we 
engage in these activities, these services. Lord, it is a joy to do ministry as a child of yours and to be empowered by your grace and and, and passioned by your love to do these things. May they be done, but may they be done out of the right heart. Please cure us, Lord, of anything that would cause us to be resentful toward one another or impatient toward one another. Help us to volunteer with all of our heart out of love for you. And guard us, Lord, from destroying our service. Oh, we need this, Lord. We trust you. We know that you can provide this. Thank you that you are so compassionate and loving with us. Perhaps even saying at this moment, yes, yes, you're concerned with many things. There's one thing necessary. May we delight ourselves at your feet. We pray this. In Jesus' name, amen.